millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecutor. Welcome again. My name is Todd Nettleton. We are in the studio today with a one-name guest. If you're a longtime listener, you know that means this is somebody working in a part of the world where uh, maybe they don't want to be identified as uh, being a guest on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Our guest is Brother Stephen. He has been working with Operation Mobilization for a long time. Uh, He is living and working in a Muslim country right now. Brother Stephen, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Let's talk first, uh, go back very to the beginning and how God called you to missions, how God really developed a passion for missions in your heart. Kind of share how you came into this line of work. I made some kind of profession of faith when I was a young child. I mean, it was a genuine profession of faith. It was during that period, my early teenage years, that God really started working in me and and put some choices before me, saying, actually, are you all in or are you not? There's no halfway in, out here. You've got to make some choices. And over a period of months, you know, he worked in my heart through different people, through my church. And I just said, okay, God, I'm all in. I'm all in. And I began to think more about what does it mean to seek his kingdom first? What does that mean in terms of the rest of the world? And also I began to think about the Muslim world from a real position of ignorance. I really didn't know anything about the Muslim world. But, you know, I'd see things on the TV about it or I'd read things and it would just spark an interest and I'd be drawn to it. And then when I was 17... I went away to a a summer conference. It was a number of different mission organizations, and they all got together. And uh, and I was there with Youth for Christ. One night, Louis Palau was speaking. He said, if there's a people of the world or a place in the world or a city that keeps coming to your mind, then take it seriously because maybe God is speaking to you. And I just had this experience of this burden lifting off my shoulders I just, okay, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me right now. I was like, okay, this is, this is where I'm heading. This is where I'm heading. And then towards the end of the week, I was walking through this campsite that we were on, and I spoke to the leader of the group I was with. And I said, how is it? How do you find it, Shelley, with you know, all these different organizations getting together, doing this? It was kind of the first time they tried it. And she said to me, oh, it's really good. She said, but you can tell who's with what organization. And you can always tell who the OMs are. I said, why is that? And she said, oh, because they're the ones who serve everyone else. So that whole week was part of a journey towards the Muslim world and actually to linking me up with OM, um, Operation Mobilization. Part of me almost regrets, and I say this carefully, part of me almost regrets that I kind of had a calling because Jim Elliott, of course, the famous missionary who was martyred in the 50s in, in South America, he said, I don't need a vision. I have a verse. And I have a very good colleague who is 25 years, uh, often in the same country as me, from Germany. And you talk to her about why she's in the Muslim world. And she'd be like, well, I read my Bible. And it said, go, go make disciples. So I just looked around and found out where there's least disciples in the world. And that's where I am. 
And I think sometimes we we, we kind of put this mission thing on a pedestal right. of, oh, you can only do it if you're really specially called. When actually we have a verse. We don't need a vision as well. So, But God works in all of us in different ways. And maybe he was gracious to me enough to kind of give me that push and that shove that I needed. And just that sense of direction. So you're 17 years old at that time. How did you then say, okay, well, what do I need to do? Because I doubt if you just got on a plane, what do I need to do to get ready to, to do this thing that God has called me to do? I thought I should really take a year between high school and university to go somewhere in the Muslim world because I really was ignorant. And, you know, I had this, this kind of uh, connection with Operation Mobilization that had developed. I learned some language and got some training and started meeting people trying to share Jesus with them and learning a lot from the people I was meeting as well. You know, I discovered, really, I was useless. <laughs> I mean, I come, from, I come from a background where, you know, I was, in, I was in the youth group. I was leading Christian groups at school. I was doing lots of things. And then I came where I couldn't speak a word of the language. I really didn't know how to relate to people. And I just felt like, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what I can do. And God really used that time he said, Stephen, I'm not so interested in what you do for me. I'm interested in your relationship with me. You know, you can, you can do this, you can do that, but what I want is intimacy with you. And that's really what I had to learn during that year. From being in a situation where I was doing lots of things for God, where, you know, I was in a situation where if I put my mind to it, I could do well at something, to being reduced to not being able to do very much, mainly because of language, and God, in his kindness and his graciousness, used that year in my life to maybe reorder some of my understanding of him and my relationship with him. So, Stephen, there are some people listening to this right now who are maybe 17 years old, maybe 20, 21, 22, who have that sense that, that God wants them to go. And, and maybe it's the Muslim world, you know, maybe it's China, maybe it's somewhere else, but they have that sense of, this is I, I really feel like this is what God is leading me towards. Give them some advice or speak into next steps for them or just encourage them. I would say just a, a couple of things. Firstly, connect with people who or, or with different organizations who can help you on that journey. Operation Mobilization is one, but there's many other very good organizations out there um, to help you on that journey. Secondly, someone said to me, before I went overseas, they said to me, as now, so then. And what they meant was this. If you think you're going to go overseas and suddenly you're going to become, you know, much more intimate and have a, a, a closer walk with Jesus than you do now, you are fooling yourself. If, if you're not walking with Jesus now, you won't be walking with Jesus when you get overseas. If you're not sharing the gospel with people now, don't think you're suddenly going to land in a different country and start sharing the gospel. If you're not living in reconciliation with your brothers and sisters now, don't think you're suddenly going to be this super spiritual Christian who can live in reconciliation with other believers when you land on the field. As now, so then. Put into practice now the habits that will see you through your life because it won't suddenly start when you're on the field. It may become harder. Amen. That is a good word. Uh, Stephen, let's talk about what it means for a Muslim to follow Jesus. I mean, it is a life change. It is a possibly quite risky decision. 
what are some of the stories that you've seen of, of people who've made that choice? When we invite people to follow Jesus, whoever they are, whatever their background, religious background is, we're inviting them to a different life. And for many Muslims around the world, that's a massive step. It's not, it's, you know, maybe here in the States or in the West, you can say, hey, you know, come and try it out for a bit. See, 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 see how it goes for you. Almost. That's kind of mm -hmm. how we can present it to people. Because we have a consumerist mentality. <laughs> well, and we have the freedom to do that right. as well. But when you're talking to a Muslim and you're saying you're inviting someone to, to follow Christ, that can have massive ramifications on their lives. And I've been in many situations where you're talking with someone, you're doing some Bible studies with them, and then suddenly you feel like they wake up to this realization of the path that they're on. And if they continue down that path, what it might mean for them, ostracization from their family, losing their job, having their children taken away from them, um, maybe being physically attacked, possibly being killed. And are there a lot that sort of step back at that point? Absolutely. A lot do. Because they, step see, back. they see the sacrifice. Yeah. And of course, Jesus says it's a, you know, count the cost. Mm -hmm. And these people are counting the cost, a cost which I've never had to count in, right. that same, in that same way. And I think we just need to pray for God's grace, for his overwhelming love, for the conviction of his Holy Spirit, and that as people, in a sense, take a step off the cliff edge sometimes, mm -hmm. that they will know the reality of God with them and that he will hold them, whatever that might mean. Is there something you do as you're interacting with them and as you're sharing the gospel, is there something you do to prepare them for that possibility of persecution? Is there, Or is it something kind of the Holy Spirit does without a lot of really intentionality on the part of, of Christians who are sharing with them. I myself, I mean, I spend a lot of time trying to study the Bible with Muslims as part of that journey mm -hmm. before they come to faith. And the life of Jesus is so transformational, so impactful as people see how he interacted with, with people, especially with women, how he loved people, how he called people to follow him. And really their dependency needs to be on Jesus. And so the more we can introduce them to Jesus, the better. There are listeners to Voice of the Martyrs Radio who are in America who go to school with a Muslim. Their coworker is a Muslim. Their neighbor is a Muslim. Is that a good option for them as well to say, hey, why don't we read the Bible together? Is that how would you advise American Christians to sort of lead into that conversation and hopefully have that opportunity to, to share Christ? Mm -hmm. I think in the West in general, we're quite, as Christians, we're quite fearful of Muslims, partly because we're so unsure, partly because of what we see happening around the world. An American pastor I met some years ago after 9-11, he was very troubled, of course, as everybody was. And God really spoke to him in the following months. And he said this to me. He said, God spoke to him and changed his whole thinking to think about Muslims not as the enemy to be defeated, but as the prize to be won. Mm -hmm. And I think for many of us, this is the mindset change we need to go through. We need to move from a position of fear to a position of actually, you know, God has placed us here. These are people that God loves dearly. Uh, what's our role in that? And of course, your average Muslim colleague, you know, classmate, neighbor, their concerns are very similar to your concerns. They're, how are my kids doing at school? 
you know, are they in healthy situations? Are they going to make good choices in the future? Income for the family? Can I provide what I need to provide? You know, these are basic human concerns and thoughts. And just because somebody's a Muslim, it doesn't mean to say that these concerns aren't actually their top concerns as well. And I think once we under, begin to understand that, that actually a Muslim is not somebody to be feared, but actually somebody to relate to, I think that can change a lot. And I think we also need to understand we are not out there to, to win a competition. We're not there to say we're running a race and I need to get across the line first. It's like, no, no, no. My job is to help somebody else cross the line. And when we take that kind of attitude, we, it's not a gate about winning the arguments or losing the arguments. It's not about me proving you wrong and me right. It's about me walking with you on a journey towards Jesus. And that means it's fine to say, actually, when we're asked a question, I don't know. I'll go and find out. I'll get back to you. It's fine for us to share just our frustrations and our struggles. It's fine for, you know, a Muslim colleague when they're talking about what's going on in their lives for us to say, actually, can I pray for you? Because it's much more natural for a Muslim to pray than many secular Western people. And I think this is the journey we need to take people on. It seems like almost just the the challenge is to be comfortable in our own faith to just kind of live that and interact with them from that position of, of comfortableness. Like, I trust God. I don't have to sort of overwhelm you with my logical arguments or my scriptural understanding. I just, you just need to see God at work in my life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, in a sense, the basis of missions, wherever we are, is God has, has loved us. How do we live that love out in a real daily way? And how are we intentional in, 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 in connecting with people and, uh, and beginning a journey with them, which may take many months or years, even, with many ups and downs, and that's okay. Do they have the same considerations, a Muslim living in America or in Australia or in the UK, do they also get to that sort of decision point where they see, okay, wait a minute— I'm I'm on a road that could take me away from my family, could take me away from my 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 community here. Do Muslims in the West kind of face that same decision point? In the vast majority of cases, yes. Because they can still be ostracized in their family. And and when you're from a a collectivist community, you know, your identity is tied up with your family, your extended family, and to be ostracized from that makes it very, very difficult. You lose a sense of identity. And so you may not face some of the, the challenges that people living in Muslim countries do, but you still face the shame. You'll feel like you've shamed your family. They will feel like you've shamed them. And that, that's difficult because it's a broken relationship of a very close relationship. So there's definitely a cost, yeah. Stephen, in the course of your service... What have you seen change in terms of reaching out to Muslims, maybe in terms of their openness? Have you seen, is it different today than it was when you were 17, 18 and, and went for the first time? Yes, I think absolutely absolutely is changed. There's a greater openness, I think, to the gospel. Why do you think that is? Ultimately, it's God's work, of course, but I think he uses different circumstances. So he uses the turmoil in many parts of the Muslim world. I mean, the tragic turmoil, which is often occurring People begin to question. People begin to look elsewhere for answers. What's the truth? What, what am I really doing? 
I think he uses media, of course, which has been revolutionized in the last 20 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, it used to be satellite TV used to be the new thing. But of course, that's the old thing now. People can access information in ways which they couldn't. If they've got questions, they can they can find answers to. Without having to go to a church or go to somebody who's known to be a Christian. Exactly. They can ask it in a text message. They can ask it online and, and get an answer. Exactly. And I think the other thing is the the prayer focus that there has been on the Muslim world in the last 25 years or so. And, you know, we can't measure the impact of that, but I'm I'm convinced as we've, you know, these 30 days of prayer during the month of Ramadan and other initiatives, we're beginning to see the fruit of that. And then I think the church. Often the church in Muslim countries, which is often a minority church, uh, which may have faced centuries of persecution, there are some wonderful, wonderful brothers and sisters in these churches who have kind of broken out of the mold, who have learned to forgive, in a sense, the centuries of, of sometimes persecution that they and their, their forefathers have faced. And that's a massive step to take mm-hmm. and to love Muslims. I say it with words, but what that means for somebody to do that, maybe an Egyptian Christian or an Indonesian Christian, or it's a massive step to lay those burdens to one side, to bring them to the foot of the cross, to ask God to take away these, these fears and these prejudices and everything else and say, just give me a love for those people who are around me. And I think as the church has increasingly done that, God has increasingly used the, the national church, often a very tiny minority church in many of these countries. What is the role that forgiveness plays in that? It's one of the things that people looking on say, how could you do that? How could you forgive that? How does that sort of play into the minds and hearts of, of Muslims who are looking at that and saying, wait a minute, that you, you forgive all of this that's been done to you? Yeah. So one of, the, one of the training programs we run in the Middle East is for uh, mainly for Arab Christians who, who are from traditional kind of Christian backgrounds, evangelical backgrounds. It's a six-month training program. The first week is getting that group, that cohort together and just talking openly about your experience growing up in a Muslim society. And everybody has stories to tell. Everybody has stories to tell. And then throughout that week, understanding God's love for us, how much he's really forgiven us, his love for other people. And then by, by God's grace, by the end of the week, people are, are working this through. And it's, it doesn't all happen in a week, of course. It takes much longer than that. But it's a, that's a foundational starting point about, do I really understand God's love and forgiveness in my life? If I do, then I be- can begin to love other people who historically I have not loved before. And it's easy to see how that makes a difference then when you go out with that kind of love and that kind of spirit. Every interaction is changed by that. Every interaction is changed because it's no longer a defensive interaction. It's no longer I'm here to prove you wrong. It's born out of a love which only comes from God, which says, I'm here, I'm for you. I want you to experience that same love that I have. I think there might be a lesson there for (laughs) (laughs) for us all. (laughs) For all of us. Let's talk, Stephen, about the country of Syria, because I know it's a country where you have some experience. Uh, it's a country that has been at war for a number of years. We, we hear about the chaos. We maybe see pictures on the news of, you know, people being killed, entire cities being basically blown up. What is it like to be a follower of Christ in Syria right now? 
it's a very uncertain life at the moment to be a follower of Christ. Christian minorities generally like stability in the Middle East Mm -hmm. because you kind of know where the lines are. You've got some kind of protection. Stability is important. Chaos is dangerous because you don't know who's going to get the upper hand. There's less security, less protection. And so, of course, many many Syrian believers have fled the country, as of many non-believers and Muslims, you know, just for right. economic or other reasons. Muslims are persecuted in, or certain Muslim groups are persecuted in Syria as well. It's not just Christians, of course. But Christians feel it very much as a minority. Uh, some have fled. Some are just kind of hunkering down. But in the midst of it, as I was sharing a bit before, those who have, who God's really worked in their hearts in a special way, you know, so that they can reach out across those lines to people who may even in, in the, not just historically, but even in the present day, be persecuting Christians to love them. And what you tend to find in, in the Middle East in general is that every group looks after themselves. So Sunni Muslims help Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims help Shiite Muslims, Catholics help Catholics, you know, Protestants help Protestants, and so on. That's a generalization, but there's a lot of truth to that. And I think what's powerful is when followers of Jesus Christ say, no, I'm going to help other groups I'm going to help well. Sunni Muslims. Yes, I'm going to help Sunni Muslims. I'm going to help Shiite Muslims. I'm going to help whoever. And I'm going to do it in the name of Jesus. And it's a very powerful testimony. And you see some wonderful believers in Syria doing this in, in very localized ways, in whatever ways they can. And actually through that, people come to faith in Christ. Muslims come to faith in Christ. And they too face problems and ostracization Mm -hmm. and everything else. But uh, it may well be that in the last 10 years of this horrible, horrible civil war, more Muslims have come to faith in Christ in Syria than than in previous decades. I mean, we we don't have the statistics. We can't measure it. But from all what I'm hearing, that wouldn't surprise Mm -hmm. me if that's the case. And it's largely the testimony of Syrian believers. On the ground. On the ground, living out their life in word and deed. Stephen, as we close out, we always want to equip our listeners to pray. Mm. We want to equip them to pray for for what God is doing in hostile and restricted nations. Talk a little bit about how we can pray for the work of OM in Muslim countries, but even the broader work of God in places where the majority of people are Muslims. Yeah, I think we can pray in a number of ways. Firstly, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in these countries— as they live out their lives for Jesus, that they would be strengthened and equipped, that the love of God would overflow into their lives and therefore overflow from their lives to those around them, that God would really bless his church and those who belong to him in these countries, whether they're from Muslims who've come to faith in more recent years or whether they're uh, people who are traditionally from Christian backgrounds. I think secondly, let's ask the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into the harvest field. I mean, we try and inspire people to to go. We try and share the the passion of God for the nations. But in the end, if the Lord of the harvest is not sending sending laborers, then it's not going to work. So let's pray for more laborers to go. And then I think thirdly, let's ask God to continue to work in our hearts. We may not end up in a Muslim country. We may be, but we can probably connect with Muslims where we are. We can we can give. We can pray. We can support in different ways. Let's ask God to soften our hearts towards his love and towards his love for those who maybe we're a bit unsure of, maybe we're a bit fearful of, maybe we're a bit scared of. Let's ask God to work in our hearts and give us opportunities right where we are to represent him well. Amen. 
Is there anything else that you would like to share or any stories you'd like to tell that I haven't touched on? I think one thing uh, that stays with me, o- over the years I've done quite a bit of work with, with nomads and desert or mountainous situations. And some time ago I was, I was in this tent. It was late at night, I was going to stay overnight and sitting with, with the guys around this open fire. It was the winter time. It was a bit cold. We had a big tent we're sitting in, but you can have an open fire inside. We're drinking hot sweet tea. And it's a great time. Once, once nightfall comes, everyone's dealt with all the animals that they're herding during the day. They're all sorted out. What else can you do but sit around a fire and tell stories? And so I took the opportunity to tell a story. I started with Abraham because that's a, a figure that people – they have some knowledge of from the Quran, but also they're very familiar as nomads with their animals. They're kind of like, okay, we understand what it is to put all your family on the back of camels and take them to somewhere else. They, it, it connects with them. Started with Abraham, went back to Adam and Eve and the story of creation and the fall and a broken relationship. Talked about Abraham taking his son to sacrifice and how God provided a ram in the place. Then talked a bit about Moses and it's a long story. Okay, and it's full of interruptions. You're sitting there drinking tea and, and uh, you know, something happens with the animals. Somebody has to go out and see what's going on. They come back in. Another guest turns up. You've got to make introductions and chat about the latest news of that part of the desert um, for a few minutes. More teas brought. And then you just kind of pick up the story. But it was a cold winter's night. And then the tent was divided to the men's section and the women's section and normally very separate. But uh, some of the women came in. And they kind of sat around the edge of the men's circle, the older women closer and the younger women towards the back. And you could just kind of see them through the flames of the fire. And I um, carried on telling the story. I got to John the Baptist, who says, you know, sees Jesus from afar. And he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then talked about the, a bit about the life of Jesus, his teaching, his miracles, got to the Garden of Gethsemane. So it really was a long story. It's like a two-hour story, okay? But in a storytelling culture, that's fine. And then got to his crucifixion and how they beat Jesus, how they put a crown of thorns on his head so the blood is, is running down. And as I was telling this part of the story, I could see through the flames of the fire in this tent, I could see on the kind of one of the outer circles this old lady you know, with with skin which looked, you know, so leathery because just a tough, tough life. She was kind of the grandmother in the family. And I could see tears coming down her face. And it struck me then, this lady has no idea how the story is going to end. I mean, I can't remember the day that I didn't know Jesus rose again. I mean, I guess theoretically there was a time when I knew he died, but I didn't know who's going to rise again. But I can't remember that time. But she had no idea how the story was going to end, that he was going to rise victorious. And that conversation, that story, that evening is one of those that sticks with me because you realize that woman is representative of so many other people around the world. Millions. Millions, hundreds of millions or billions who... who who have no idea even about anything to do with the story, let alone how it finishes. And and the mandate for us as the church 
is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.